Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on the craft of writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. Listeners to our podcasts don't need instruction regarding grammar. Remember grammar classes in fourth grade? My main recollection of those lessons is how I managed to chew huge wads of bazooka bubblegum during class without Mrs. Daniels detecting it. What a victory. If I ever learned how to diagram a sentence, I've forgotten it. I remember the bazooka, though, with great fondness. I want to talk about a a technique, and yeah, it's grammar, that'll make our sentences more lively. This technique, done the right way, can make a scene hop. Done the wrong way, the scene can be sleepy. It's the difference between the active voice and the passive voice. The difference is easy to understand, and it's easy to do right if we know and appreciate the difference. So let's talk about that for a minute. This sentence is in the active voice. Connie threw the ball. In the active voice, the subject, Connie, performs the action, throwing the ball. That's easy. Here are a couple more sentences written in the active voice. The pilot flew the plane. The woman ate the steak. Here are some sentences written in the passive voice. The ball was thrown by Connie. The plane was flown by the pilot. The steak was eaten by the woman. It's a big difference. Connie threw the ball versus the ball was thrown by Connie. In the active version, the subject acts. Connie throws. In the passive version, the subject, Connie, no longer acts, but instead is is being acted upon by the verb. In the passive version, uh, version, the subject, Connie, is passive. For the reader, the active version has energy, while the second version, the passive version, lacks energy. Readers might not know or care about the difference between active and passive voices, but they'll detect energy with the active voice, and they'll, they'll detect a flatness with the passive voice. And here's a related thing. The passive voice adds words to the action, and, the cha- and it changes the action's normal direction, which is where the doer acts. So the reader takes a moment longer to understand what's going on. With the passive voice, the reader has to work harder. Here is a four-sentence paragraph written in the passive voice. Notice that despite the action in the paragraph, the words are flat. The diary was lifted by Anne. It was gripped in her hands, and then it was held out toward Stephen. Outside, the pasture was being crossed by the family's two horses, and the sound was echoed by the house. There's something wrong in these sentences, and the reader might not take the time to think about the grammatical reason, they are, uh, which is that they are all written in the passive voice, but the reader will feel the lack of energy. Here are the same sentences written in the active voice. Anne lifted the diary. She gripped it in her hands, then held it out toward Stephen. 
Outside, the family's two horses crossed the pasture, and the house echoed with the sound. Hear the difference? The passive version seems anesthetized, while the active version shows the characters and the horses and the horses acting. A difference in energy exists between the active and the passive versions. Once in a while, the passive voice is useful. Uh, first, it can vary the form of the sentences, that is, to change the musical beat. After four or five or six active sentences, a passive sentence changes up things and might be suitable. Uh, variety in most everything in a novel is usually a strong technique, and that applies to sentence form. A passive voice, a uh, passive sentence once in a while offers variety. And second, uh, once in a while, a, the passive voice is useful to emphasize weakness or submission or ineptitude, where the subject, the person, is well portrayed by being acted upon. Bobby was punched by his brother is in the passive voice, and here the passive voice emphasizes that, that Bobby's being bullied. So today I'm Mr. Grammar. The main point here is to be aware of the difference between the active and the passive voices, and most of the time consider writing in the active voice. My new novel, Fagan and Miss Havisham, has been released and is available at Amazon. The novel takes place in London in the 1820s, and its characters are Charles Dickens's famous characters from many of his novels. Fagin and Bill Sykes from Oliver Twist, Miss Havisham from Great Expectations, Murdstone from David Copperfield, and many others. They are younger than in Dickens's novels, and I toss them together to see what happens. The publisher is Creative Texts, an independent publisher and a good one, and I'm delighted. I had huge fun researching and writing the novel. I tried to take readers back to London 200 years ago, and I hope you'll consider getting a print or ebook copy. You'll be able to see whether I can actually do the writing techniques we talk about in these episodes. The title again is Fagin and Miss Havisham. Thank you. I came across a terrific article by the novelist Dwight Swain. The article is titled The Dynamics of Disbelief. He lists the reasons readers may stop enjoying and following our story. I, I want to talk about Dwight Swain's list. The explanations of the list are, uh, are a mix of, of him and me. Fiction is based on the suspension of disbelief. Readers know a story isn't real, that isn't true, of course, but in their role as a reader, uh, as readers, they pretend it's true, and they live through it with the characters. Michael Crichton's novel Jurassic Park is a famous example. It offers an imaginary island populated by dinosaurs. Readers know such a place doesn't really exist, but the concept fascinates them, so they read on, caught up in the excitement 
uh, of, El- of Alan Grant and his graduate student, Ellen Sattler. During the time they spend with the book, readers suspend their disbelief, their, their knowledge that the situation and the story aren't true. It's, a, it's dinosaurs for Pete's sake. What if, for some reason, our story doesn't cause the reader to suspend disbelief? We writers, of course, don't want the reader to think, I'm not buying this, or something isn't feeling real in this story. If that's the case, it's probably due to one or more flaws that have occurred while we were writing. What flaws? What are some of the things that can disrupt readers' suspension of disbelief regarding our story? The possibilities are endless, but the bulk of the flaws can fall into several categories, Dwight Swain says. These are the things that can bring a reader out of the story, flaws that will bring the reader's head up. Dwight Swain lists the first one. Characters can have a faulty viewpoint, meaning their thoughts aren't well-crafted. And he says there are several aspects to this. Wrong or no attitudes. How's the character seeing events in this story, Dwight Swain asks. What are the character's beliefs and attitudes and the emotions that drive him or her? Uh, the way uh, he reacts to, the, to what's happening. In real life, we respond to others according to our existing attitudes and our feelings. If I feel my brother is forever bossing me, I may respond with anger instead of gratitude when he lines me up for a high-paying job. As an aging mother, I may burst into tears if my daughter... Uh, with all good intentions, surprises me with the gift of a luxury condo that will take me away from my rundown neighborhood with its familiar church and stores and all my friends. These attitudes, your, the character's attitudes, if they bear on our story, need to be taken into account as we write. The, and as the, the, our main character travels through the novel. Another subset of the wrong thinking by our character is jumping around with the point of view. We've talked about point of view earlier, and and so I won't spend a lot of time on it now, except to say that the reader should stay inside the mind of only one character in a scene, and the point of view shouldn't jump from character to character within a scene. It gives the scene uh, a dizzying quality and makes the scene harder to understand, uh, harder to believe in. We're talking about elements that can bring a reader out of the story that make the story less believable. And Dwight Swain's first flaw is that characters can have a faulty viewpoint, and he lists several subcategories of that. The third one is the character who is too dumb. Readers seldom like a stupid character as the main character in a scene, one who does stupid things. An example, uh, the heroine in a romance receives a message telling her to go alone to the blood-drenched tower of the old mansion at midnight for whatever reason. Uh, 
If the heroine goes, the reader will throw down the book because she can't believe that any woman in her right mind would do such a thing. By failing to show even reasonable common sense, the heroine has lost the reader's sympathy and has has shattered the suspension of disbelief. In the same way, our hero, who has no weapons, charges three armed men. It's foolish. The reader will accept the fight more readily if the hero also has some intelligence and comes up with some sort of a plan. Uh, Dwight Swain's point is a solid one. Our character should show real-life common sense and not be too dumb. His fourth subcategory is a character who's too brainy. Uh, Too great of an intelligence is a negative where a main character is concerned. A hero or heroine is more acceptable if he or she is normal in that regard because most readers don't much like the brain. But if you do create a brilliant hero, make her modest too, or endearing. Rex Stout's famous detective Nero Wolfe is brilliant, but he also had uh, fun eccentricities that the reader likes. and he had, a, such as growing orchids, and he had a down-to-earth and normal sidekick, Archie Goodwin. Number two on Dwight Swain's list about things that can bring readers out of the novel is inadequate research. We writers should have knowledge about technical things in this story, because if we don't, the reader probably will. A reader might easily conclude that the writer doesn't know what he's talking about. And Dwight Swain says, often this affects the attitude of our characters. How is a mother in 1850 in Kansas supposed to feel about the Comanches? How does a current Hong Kong businessman feel about a union organization drive in the construction industry? I have been amazed over the years to discover via the Internet that there are groups of people who have deep, deep knowledge about a very narrow slice of life. Uh, For example, some folks just love train locomotives, especially those from earlier eras, and they know a lot about them. It's a fun hobby, this gaining this knowledge. And if we, the writers, say... A Union Pacific big boy locomotive had a 4664 wheel arrangement. Some readers are going to jerk their heads up because they know, and they love knowing, that a big boy had a 4884 wheel arrangement. The mistake brings the knowledgeable reader out of the story and drastically lessens the story's credibility. Lots of people have deep knowledge about arcane subjects. Beekeeping, quilting, 18th century pistols, Paris cafes in 1900, violins, uh, the dark side of the moon. The subject matter hardly matters. We writers should do our research, and so we'll keep these readers in the story. They'll probably be, they'll probably nod along with our story when we get the research right. Here's an example of a, a of fun and 
arcane knowledge from Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, and it's my favorite example of knowing a small thing and lending credibility to the story. Huckleberry has disguised himself as a girl, but a woman penetrates the ruse instantly because Huck clamps his leg together when she drops a lump of lead in his lap. Here's the scene. This is Mark Twain. Well, the woman fell to talking about how hard times was and how poor they had to live and how the rats was as free as if they owned the place and so forth and so on, and then I got easy again. She was right about the rats. You'd see one stick his nose out of a hole in the corner every little while. She said she had to... She said she had to have things handy to throw at them when she was alone or they wouldn't give her no peace. She showed me a bar of lead twisted up into a knot, and she said she was a good shot with it generally, but she'd wrenched her arm a day or two ago and didn't know whether she could throw true now. But she watched for a chance and directly banged away at a rat, but she missed him wide and said, ouch, it hurt her arm so. Then she told me to try for the next one. I wanted to get away before the old man got back, but of course I didn't let on. I got the thing, and the first rat that showed his nose I let drive, and if he'd stayed, a, if he'd stayed where he was, he'd have been a tolerable sick rat. She said that was first rate, and she reckoned I would hive the next one. She went and got the lump of lead and fetched it back and brought along a hank of yarn which she wanted me to help her with. I held up my two hands, and she put the hank over them, and went on talking about her and her husband's matters. But she broke off to say, Keep your eye on the rats. You better have the lead in your lap handy. So she dropped the lump into my lap just at that moment, and I clapped my legs together on it, and she went on talking. But only about a minute. Then she took off the hank and looked me straight in the face, and very pleasant, and says, Come now. What's your real name? What, Mum? What's your real name? Is it Bill or Tom or Bob? What is it? Mark Twain's having some fun here with Huck uh, when the lady dropped the lump of lead because a lifetime of wearing skirts would have conditioned her to spread her knees to catch a, a thrown object. How did Mark Twain know this? Well, he, he might have done research, but it's a convincing little episode on on how getting things right can keep you in the story. Swain's third method of keeping us in the story, showing brings belief, telling doesn't. So if we write, Julie's new dog Spike was a terror, you might or might not believe her. But if you say that day, if the reader sees Spike chasing a smaller dog around and around, snarling fiercely, you now can make an accurate conclusion. You, the reader, have been presented evidence. You've seen it with your own eyes. If we write, it was raining outside, we've told the reader it was raining, and we've asked the reader to believe us. But if we write, John came in through the door, water pouring from the brim of his hat, we've shown the reader evidence and allowed the reader to make her own conclusion. Swain recommends writing our fiction with such proofs. Show things happening. Just, just don't tell about them. We're talking about Dwight Swain's list of mistakes that can make readers suspend their disbelief that might make our story less 
credible. His next one is four, gaps in stimulus and response. A scene is made up of a continuous series of stimulus and response units. It's what gives the reader the feeling he's living through the experience. But it's easy for a writer to allow uh, gaps to creep into the story where a stimulus doesn't lead to a response. These are gaps, like steps missing in a stairway. Leave, leave out either a riser or a tread on a staircase, and you have a hole in the staircase. So if Allison slaps Max, and he gives no indication of it, or uh, if a character touches a hot stove but doesn't respond by jerking back his hand, and readers will have a difficult time believing them. Every time you hold your hand out with a pen in it and you let, it, you let the pen go, it'll fall to the desk or floor. Sometimes writers forget this, this and will forget the response to stimulus. Or they forget that stimulus precedes a response. Next on Dwight Swain's list is a failure to plant or a failure to foreshadow. This can be a major cause of reader disbelief. To plant something means to stick that something into our story early because you know you're going to need it later. The hero is going to need a gun in chapter 12, so you plant a gun, you reveal its presence to the reader in a desk drawer in the first few chapters. You don't want to make an issue of it, you want to make it obvious it's there. Uh, We can be subtle with our planting. And also, planting isn't limited to physical objects. You can, and we probably should, plant character traits. A character who kicks dogs and pulls the wings off flies will be a credible villain later in the novel. Abilities should also be planted. If someone must figure out what's wrong with a broken-down pickup truck, establish that she is mechanically minded earlier in the novel. It could be as simple as helping her son with an erector set crane. Next on Swain's list that can lead to the suspension of disbelief is distaste or denial. How much realism is is acceptable in a story where our character's behavior is concerned? How much? Will too much realism aggravate readers so much that it shatters suspension of disbelief? Watching people in the bathroom is usually enough to bring a reader out of a story. They don't want to watch that. But maybe watching a character take an insulin shot is okay. Uh, If you detail uh, evidence of a sexual assault, you can take a chance. Bloody descriptions of accidents or surgery or war might bring some readers out of the story if it's too graphic. So we should be aware that some characters and some actions can be distasteful to some readers. I know it's a a borderline thing, but at least we should give it some thought. Next on Swain's list are unlikable characters. Readers and editors can reject, refuse to believe our story if they don't find at least one of our characters likable, someone to cheer for. A novel is a buddy experience. We've mentioned those things about characters that make the character someone the reader wants to spend 300 pages with. 
Here's an example where I think the author did something wrong. One of the best Western novels in the past years is titled The Sisters Brothers, and the author is Patrick DeWitt. The brothers, whose last name is Sisters, are guns for hire. They're, they're professional assassins. It's a terrific novel. And I was enjoying every page until I learned in backstory that the brothers blinded one of their victims before killing him to let the victim know how serious his situation was. They dug out his eyes. Well, that's too much for me. The novel's so good I finished it, but I sure didn't like the brothers after that. I wish they wouldn't have done that. So that's Dwight Swain's list, and it's a good one. I've added my comments to the list as I went along. We, we writers should try to keep the readers in the story, keep their heads down and eyes on the page. This list may help us keep the reader's disbelief suspended. We have arrived at the end of this podcast. I'm glad you were along for it. If you'd like to send me a message, my email address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. And until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>